0: It's a good day, and I think it's a really good day because a good friend of mine is here to bring the message this morning, and his name is Ken Demar. Uh, Ken and I go back about ten years or so when he first came onto the district leadership team, and he is our coach overseeing our church. He oversees about 50 churches, so he's often on the road and connecting with pastors and staff and elders all over uh, Alberta, and we so love him and. Uh, I appreciate his heart. I appreciate the wisdom he brings to me personally. Uh, He has met at times with our elders here in our church and our staff, bringing encouragement uh, to anything that we need encouragement in. And there's always a day when you need encouragement, right? The work of a district coach at times takes them into tough places where they have to bring uh, real wisdom in tense situations. And we pray for Ken as he faces those. And we thank God for his uh, heart and his character in his love for the Lord. He and his wife, Anna Dawn, they live in Cochrane. And uh, I just found this out about a week ago. They became proud grandparents just recently. They have a grandson named Royce, which is awesome. That's their first grandchild. And I want to honor these guys. I want to honor them for their serve and for their sacrifice, which is great. We get to be blessed because they're such a blessing to us. So Anna Dawn, wherever you are, you're included in this. Let's uh, welcome and celebrate and honor Ken DeMar. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Now, one more thing. You know, he emailed me and said, what do you want me to preach on? I said, well, you know, anything. And that didn't go far enough. So, like, what do you really want me to preach on? And I I hinted, you know, challenge us to get outside the walls, right? And you've got the message. It's going to be awesome. So, receive it in your hearts.
1: Okay. Thank you. Lord God, weigh the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Do nothing but build your kingdom do nothing but bring glory and honor to you. May the words that are heard today not be what I speak, but what you shape to the hearts of the people listening. That's my hope and prayer. Amen. Well, it is a pleasure to be with you here today. It's my privilege, mostly, you don't get to see me in this role very often, mostly I get to work with your staff and your leaders and your elders, um, sort of behind the scene as they, as they uh, lead with wisdom and integrity, and I get to simply be a part of that. So an opportunity to be able to share with you today is, is both a joy and a privilege to me. I do bring you greetings from the district staff and leadership team, and especially I bring you greetings from your district superintendent, Brent Trask. Uh, he talked to him last night. Um, as his usual fashion, he calls us and says, what are you guys doing this weekend? And so I told him I was here and he said, be sure to bring special greetings uh, to you from, from your, your district superintendent. You know, several years ago, the Christian Missionary Alliance in Canada adopted a national prayer that we believe reflected the heartbeat of what God wants for us to be in re- right relationship with God and God's purposes on earth. The prayer went something like this. Not something like this, exactly like this. (laughs) Oh God, with all our hearts we long for you. Come, transform us to be Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered, mission-focused people, multiplying disciples everywhere. Out of that prayer came three essential areas of focus by which we intend to to actually shape every aspect of, of the ministry of the Christian Missionary Alliance. We are committed to being Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, and mission-focused as a standard for what we do, how we live, and what we focus on as our priorities. Now, as a Western Canadian district, we've asked ourselves what those three focus areas should mean specifically to us, and how we might best implement those, those very areas into the life of, our, of the church in Alberta and the Northwest Territories, which is the, North, is, which is the Western Canadian district. How that worked out is that in our context, of which you are a part, we highlighted priorities in each of those areas. For us, being Christ-centered is about being disciple-makers, making disciples who make disciples, for that's as Christ's command to us as His disciples. Being Spirit-empowered for us means an emphasis on renewal. We know that as we experience spiritual renewal, we open the door for the power of God's Holy Spirit to be freed to work in us and through us to accomplish God's desire in our community and on earth. You guys do this very, very well, and I'm so proud of you. Being mission-focused for us means looking around us and across our country and around our world and saying, where are the least-reached people groups that God is calling us to care for? I know that God is at work in each of these areas, but I would like today to focus on this area of being Christ-centered and the the impact of that being making disciples. I, I say this with a great deal of shame, and that is that we are not very good at making disciples. In fact, about 20% of our churches, in the Alliance churches in Alberta, when we ask what their plan and strategy for making disciples might be, were able to give us any definitive kind of answer, 20%. Of that 20%, there's not a, higher, there's not a high number of, P, of churches that would admit that their plans and strategies are highly effective at making disciples. And suddenly we're left asking the question, why is this? I mean, Jesus clearly tells us to make disciples, and we, we care about making disciples, but we seem to do, be doing a, at best mediocre job of actually making disciples. So, so the question is, who's at fault here? Is it us as a district who don't sit, set this as a high enough priority? Or is it local staff, elders and leaders who don't get their, their plans in place? Turns out, I expect that the answer is none of the above. I think there's another another issue. I suspect that there may be something wrong, not with our plans, but with our thinking. Let me see if I explain it this way. We live in a world that, that is changing at a mind-numbing pace. We, we, we hardly get someone accustomed to one technological innovation before we're faced with the The reality that what we have just tried to figure out is now obsolete, because there's something altogether new and altogether better. Have you ever bought a phone or a computer and discovered that? By the time you got it home, it's obsolete. In the middle of all of this fast-paced change and turmoil, the church then kind of struggles to find its place, and one has to wonder, so... So what do we do? How did this get started? How do we lose track, it seems, of of where we fit into the world? And, And how does the structure of what's going on around us impact our understanding of and practice of being the church? I suppose one doesn't have to be much of a historian to know that the modern world really began about, oh, say, 500 years ago. And then it took about another 200 years to really let the changes of the modern world take effect. And probably if we're honest, there are three things that impacted the change from the ancient world where change happened very, very slowly to the modern world where change happens today at breakneck speed. The first change was the printing press. Almost overnight, at least in historical terms, it made anyone who could learn to read an an equal and allowed thoughts and ideas to be transferred between people like at no other time in history. It literally changed the world. The second thing that impacted the coming of the modern world was secure, ocean-going vessels. It made trade and transportation possible and opened nearly the whole world to the average person. The world became a smaller place and the transfer of people and ideas and concepts suddenly became a global experience and not just a village experience. And think today with airline travel and communication, it's even getting smaller and, and more impacted by that. The third factor that, that impacted the change from the ancient world to the modern world was something called enlightenment thinking. Enlightenment thinking actually created a major shift in the world because in this new age of enlightenment, we came to believe that we can solve any problem and all problems, frankly, simply through reason. Enlightenment thinking said, all we have to do, really, is when we see a problem, just break it down into smaller and more manageable parts, analyze those specific parts, fix those that are broken, and then put it all back together again into a working whole. That kind of thinking helped create, well, the printing press, all kinds of engineering revolutions, and a host of inventions that it could not even have been dreamed of before the enlightenment thinking process. Now, while this kind of thinking process works fairly well in a technical world, it still has a few major flaws. What happens, for example, when we can't analyze the specific parts of something apart from the whole? Let me explain. We we tend to look look at a lot of life from the enlightenment perspective as if life were a machine. Even our terminology reflects that. We talk about something running on, hitting on all cylinders, or we refer to things as running smoothly. Well, these are machine metaphors. We spend years going to school to learn how to see a problem, take it apart, analyze it piece by piece, and then find out what's wrong, fix it so that we can reassemble it back into the hole and make it work. So when an engine's not running right, what do we do? We take it apart. And and the cracked ring or worn-out bearing... Uh, find the the cracked ring or the worn-out bearing, replace it, put it back together, and we know that this will solve the problem. And if by chance it doesn't, we know that we must simply find some other part that is broken, fix it, and eventually in fixing the individual parts, the whole will work well, will be fixed. Now, this works for the most part, but when you think about it, we can find ourselves in a pickle a bit when we come across a situation where you can't fix the whole simply by tinkering with an individual part. You can't think for imagine, oh, that person's head or that person's leg is not working right, so let's just cut it off, take it apart, see what's wrong, find a way to fix it, and then put it back together, and surely everything will be just fine after that. It just doesn't work that way with a living organism. Now, the disconnect for us here is we tend to treat the church like a machine. So when we think of something's not working right in the church, we tend to think that all we need to do is analyze the various parts, find out what's broken or not working right, fix that one thing, and then the whole will be better again. The thing we forget is that the dominant metaphor for the church in Scriptures is a body, a living organism. When we think about the church in a way that doesn't reflect the biblical perspective of the church, even when our motives are right, we can, do, we can and do end up doing more damage to the church than we do good when we try and fix and tweak the small parts. Those of you from my generation really began to see this in, in a pronounced effect in the 60s and 70s. We realized in the 60s and 70s the church had begun to, our influence had begun to wane. So we began to look at the individual components of the church and decided that some of the individual components need to get fixed in order to make us whole and culturally aware and relevant. So we introduced contemporary music into our churches. We brought drums onto the stage, thinking if we could just tweak our worship services, if we could just be a bit more culturally relevant, then we could somehow regain our place in society and culture. Then we decided, well, maybe we needed to engage people at an even deeper level. So we introduced video screens and video clips, and we didn't make people read songs out of of, uh, books or a hymnal. That, surely, we reasoned, would allow people to become more engaged, and then they'd flock to our services. They'd want to be a part of our congregation. Only two problems with that. First of all, it seemed that no matter what we did, (laughs) they didn't come. And second, we bought into a wrong worldview and thinking process that said, if we can just fix the parts, then the whole will be correct and right. What really happened was that atomizing and analyzing and fixing and tweaking the individual parts, frankly, didn't solve our problem. Instead, sadly, the influence of the church has continued to wane over the decades, And suddenly, we live in a day and age where we're faced with a very real problem. We, in many ways, are simply losing the battle to affect and change our culture. And instead, we're living in a culture that is easily identifiable as post religious, post Christian. The question for us is, are we going to keep on tweaking programs and seeking to be more culturally hip, or are we to the place where we may need to think closely about what it means to do and to be the church, the body of Christ in our lost and dying world? Do we really think that people in this community are struggling with the issue of whether they ought to go to Eggs Oasis for breakfast or if they ought to come to church today? I don't think so. While seeking to be relevant is not a bad thing, and it still ought to be something we give thought to, the fact is that relevance doesn't change the trend of people away from the church. Then, to add injury to insult, I believe in the last few years, we see a changing trend away from the relevance issue to an even more brand new issue. Today, I believe most people don't bother with church simply because they think that the church exists, who? For church people. Think for a moment about, we got a problem here. If they think that the church is for people who already go there, we can tweak and change and fix to our heart's content, and they're still not going to come. We can have great everything, and yet if their perception is that the church isn't for them, they're simply not going to show. Suddenly we realize that this is a problem that is not within our walls. It's not a problem within us, how we're doing church, but one outside of our walls. This is not something we can adjust with a new program or a better worship band or more exciting youth or children's programs. It is, in their mind, like seeing a club that advertises itself for veterans of World War II. No matter how we might appreciate that club, No matter how great their programs and services are, we would not for a moment consider seeking to join that club or even probably stopping by there if we're not a Second World War vet. We might be happy they exist. We might say, I'm so glad they're serving that group of people. But we would feel that they exist for them and not for us, so why do I need to be involved? And you know what? That's how society views us. That's how they view the church. And it ought to ask us, leave us asking some important questions, questions like, so is this their problem or is it our problem? And I think we need to admit that the problem is ours. It's on our side. And so if we admit that, which we need to, then we need to ask, so what are we going to do about it? I fear if we look at this whole thing honestly, that the real issue might simply be that we've lost sight of our real mission and our real purpose for existence. And if that is true, then we need to stop thinking that all we need to do is to fix and reform the church, tweaking and adjusting the programs. Hold it now. I'm not saying that we don't need well-run and excellent programs and ministries in the church. Don't get me wrong here. We need excellent worship and teaching and ministries, but maybe instead of seeing our fixing and tweaking as the best and final solution, we need to think about a full-blown reconfiguration of how we think about church. Maybe we need to get back to the Great Commission and ask ourselves again, what it is that God really wants us to be as we go about trying to be the church? Listen again to what Matthew says to us, as as says that we are to be about in Matthew 28, what Jesus says in Matthew 20, 18. He says this, "'All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age.'" Listen to the way the message puts this. I love the, 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 the way the message states this, this verse. He says, "'God authorized and commanded me to commission you. Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I have commanded you. I will be with you as you do this, day after day after day, right up to the end of the age.'" Jesus tells us here that we are, as we are going out to do life, we are to be about making disciples. No, we're not supposed to come in to make disciples. We're supposed to be going out to make disciples. Inherent in that statement is the idea of something so powerful happening here as we gather that there's a kind of centrifugal force thrusting disciples outward into the world, thrusting us into the world, making disciples. Interestingly enough, however, the efforts of the church over the last few hundred years have not been to send people out into our world, but to do everything we can to get them to come into a central place, whatever that may look like, that we call our church building in order to get them to attend a church service. The central focus of our message to our community and to our world has been to get them to come to our activity. Remember what Jesus told His disciples in Acts 1.8? These these are his last words on earth. You know how before you go out and, and you're leaving instructions for your kids, what do you do? You tell them all sorts of things for the hour before you go, and then just as you walk out the door, what do you do? You give them the last, most important thing that you know, don't forget this, right? You, they, you know they're going to forget everything else you've told them, but this they had better understand. Well, this is Jesus getting ready to be taken to heaven. He turns to His disciples and gives them this last command. He's serious about this. He wants us to know this with all of our hearts. And what did He say to us? He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses every Sunday morning in your congregation. Not likely. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Airdrie, and in all of Alberta, and in all of Western Canada, and to the very ends of the earth. That's what you're called to do. Again, notice here, there's a kind of, of centrifugal force about Jesus' words. There's very little about inviting people to come to our gathering. There's very little about counting it a success when we increase the numbers of our am attendance. Instead, the call is to be thrust outward. Almost opposite to that it seems, th- that the common goal of all of our outreach events is to get people to what? To come. Come to our church. We have somehow come to believe that to get people to come into these sacred walls is the total goal of our existence. And when it hasn't worked very well as a whole, we have worked harder to tweak what we're doing within these walls to get them to, so as to make them, uh, to make ourselves more enticing. And the problem is this no matter what we do, our communities seem to be saying that the church is for church people. So they just don't come. And what is our response? We said, well, maybe we just need to make the music a little louder. Maybe we just ought to show more video clips. Maybe we ought to have better preaching. Think about this for a moment. Do we think that as Jesus gave His His great commission to us to go out and make disciples, that at some point He was thinking that we would essentially turn what He says around and instead of going out, we would only get to try people, try to get people to come in? this building? Are we to think that what we're doing is really, really what He asked us to do? Somehow I suspect this is probably not what Jesus had in mind. Now, I know what you're thinking at this point. I think I know what you're thinking at this point. You're asking, Ken, are you telling us that what we're doing here is to be understood as wrong? No, no, not at all. Let me explain it this way. The Scriptures clearly tell us that we should not back off from, uh, the word that uses forsake is the biblical term, the gathering of ourselves as believers on a regular basis. We need to be together. We need to worship. We need to learn. We need to encourage one another, pray for one another, lift each other up. That's a biblical mandate. It's not a choice for us. It's, it's what we're called to do. What I want to suggest to you is that there are some shifts we're going to need to make in order to be an effective church. There are some things that Jesus invited us to do and to be that we are going to need to rethink. I'm not suggesting a program tweak and fix change. Instead, we're going to have to rethink how we do ministry and what our purpose as a church really is. To do this, I think that we're going to have to make some shifts in our thinking. Remember I said, I think the problem is the way we think? I think we're going to have to do some shifts in our thinking and our thinking of what our purpose as a church really is. First, we are going to need to shift from me to mission. Let me explain what I mean by that. So why do we, as a general rule, attend church? For most of us, we attend church because it helps me. It gives me hope and strength to get through the week. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's the perfect reason to come to church. However, the whole point, from a biblical perspective, of coming and getting filled up is to then go and impact a dark and dying world. Jesus told His disciples to to gather together, but the purpose of that gathering of His disciples was to find the power through through God's Holy Spirit to go out into the world and be witnesses. The problem we must face is that for many believers, all our coming to church and getting filled up is terminating on the me. And it's not getting beyond me in order to impact the world around me. Instead, we need to ask, what is the point of our being together? Am I just here to get filled up for me? Or does, in fact, God have a broader idea in mind when He tells us to meet together? Let me state it another way. So, how many people in your broader group of friends, the people at your work, your neighborhood, um, wherever, in the last five years have come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord because of your influence? Are there at least some in process? We ought to be able to see how coming and getting filled up has helping us be the people equipped to do what? To go and make disciples. That's, that's the call that God has for us. If we're getting fed regularly, there ought to be two or five or ten, maybe even 20 who we know are being impacted by, the going, by our going out fed and equipped to be obedient to Jesus' command. If this is what would happen,ing the church would be bursting at the seams. You see, that's the, really the litmus test of how we understand what is what our gathering is really about. If we're just coming and getting fed and that's all it's doing for us, is serving us and helping us get through our week, then we're here for the wrong reason. And the charges of our communities that we exist only for serving ourselves is absolutely right on. So the shift that each of us here needs to make is the shift of coming each week just for me to coming each week looking to be empowered for mission. Let me go on a bit of a tangent here for a moment if you'll excuse me, but every once in a while I get people, if I say something like this, they say, well, you know, Ken, I'm just not getting fed. Because I know in my heart that if those people were out doing what God called them to do, they would come in hungry and thirsty for what the church has to offer. But, I'm, but a I'm not being fed line tells me that they have come to the place where they are so me-centered, so full, that the only thing that is going to appeal to them is something new and different and especially tasty and wonderful. Entertain me or, or frankly, I'm just not being fed. That breaks my heart. Several years ago, I was blessed to take a sabbatical, and during that time, I spent a month in Jordan and in Israel. Incredible time. And while I was there, if, if you know me at all, you know that, that I'm a fan of meat. I mean, if, you know, that's just always the first choice on, on the menu, right? If, you're ask, if, if, you, if I'm asking what's for dinner, what I mean is what meat are we having? I don't care about anything else, okay? So, and while fish is technically a meat... I, I must admit that fish would not be the protein that I'm most likely to order if I have a choice. So while I was in Israel, we one day walked from Jerusalem to, towards Jericho in, on what is known as the Jericho Road. It was a hot walk. They told us it was going to be how many miles it was. We were told that, that it gets very, very hot in this ravine that we're in, so we're to carry lots of water. So I carried water instead of food. And by the time we got to our destination that night, I was so hungry, I was about weak. And as we sat down to supper that night, you know what was placed in front of us? Was this whole fish, head and all, head, tails, fins, everything, that had been charred in a fire and then plopped onto our plate. It had dozens of tiny, hard-to-find bones, burnt edges, and from my perspective, Pretty questionable cleaning. It was the best fish I ever ate. <laughs> I ate the skin and, the, and a good many of the bones. Just, it was too, I was too hungry to take them out, just chew them down and eat it. I loved every bite. All that was left is a skeleton of the head. Now, I've eaten fish before then and after then, but I've never liked it that much. And the question is, was it that fish that was so extraordinary? Or was it my hunger that impacted my perspective on that fish? And what exactly might that say about our claims that when we come to church, we just don't get fed? So the next time you're tempted to say, I'm not getting fed here, well... I don't have to tell you, make the application yourself. You really know already the real issue. Is your life such that you're coming hungry? Is your passion and service to God so diligent that you come each week hungry for a touch and a word from God? If so, here's my promise to you, you will get fed. I know your staff, I know your pastors, I know the ministries that happen here you will get fed. But if you don't come hungry, everything tastes kind of blah. Having said, I think we need to do more than just a shift from me to mission. That's one major shift we need to make. But I think there's a secondary shift in our thinking we need to make. And the second thing we need to do is shift from ministry to missions. Now, this is really different from the first point. I was talking to a couple who had just started the process of a move to another province some time ago, and I asked, hey, have you found a church? They said, no, oh, we're still looking, we haven't quite settled yet. And I said, oh, is that right? Why? And they said, well, let me tell you an experience we had. They had attended a church for the first time, and they were greeted at the door, wonderful. And then they were asked, well, oh, are you in, new in town? We haven't seen you before. And they explained that they were soon moving to town, and, and when they moved to town, they're looking for a church. And the person greeting them responded with this, Well, I sure hope you like working with children because we sure need some help in that area of the church so you, you can pretty quickly get involved. Well, needless to say, they probably decided they're not going to come to that church. But sadly, might that not reflect our thinking at times about how we expect people to serve in the kingdom? When we talk about being engaged in ministry, inviting each other to be involved in ministry, what do you suppose our prominent mindset is? In reality, when we talk about involving people in the ministry of the church, almost without fail, we, think about, we are thinking that this means helping someone find a place to serve, guess where? Inside the, church, the four walls of the church. Be it a Sunday school teacher, help usher, be a greeter, work in the nursery, help the clean the church, work in the youth. The list goes on and on. Now, don't get me wrong, we need people to do those things, but my guess is that at a conservative estimate, 95% of our ministry ask is done to serve us and us only, and often less than 5% of what we consider our ministry is done to reach those outside the church. Think what would happen for a moment if we decided that over the next few years, we are going to consciously make an effort to change those percentages. What if we decided that next year we're going to have 10% of all of our ministry focus and efforts on people outside our congregation? How would it change the way our community thinks about us, do you you suspect? What if the year after that we moved to 20% and then 30% of our ministry focuses focusing on people outside of our church? You know, the church is the only organization in the world that lives exclusively for people who don't belong to the church. That's why we're here." You see, that would be shifting from ministry to missions, and it would impact our community and our world in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. We would suddenly, I think, start to look a lot like the early church, which Luke tells us saw God adding to their number almost daily those who were being saved. This means that we have to start thinking that getting people to come to our church as much as we still want people to come to church, but is not the end goal of the church. And that church attendance, rather, is a supplement, a source of strength and hope for the task of doing life in Christ. God calls us to be salt and light. That very call is to be about influencing, changing our world. Salt never brings benefit while it's in the salt shaker. And light in a clo- in, closed in a closet is seldom able to light the room for us. Yet sadly, we have somehow defined our existence and our purpose as staying in the salt shaker and in the closed closet. Have you ever wondered what would happen in our communities if we decided to take the church to them? Some of these shifts are beginning to happen. I see it more and more every day. Think for me for a moment. How would the church be reconfigured if its primary focus was moving outside instead of seeking people to move inward? Jesus told us that a church like that, you know what? The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. But tell me, how threatened are those gates as we gather here in our holy huddle? Yeah, we see God at work, and I'm thrilled with that. But we're not necessarily impacting the world. How effective would a football team be if if it never left the huddle? Oh, they could be having great talks Touching deep inner issues in that huddle. They could be caring for each other, showing great compassion for each other, while never even getting into, much less ever winning the game. Or worse yet, too often the church has been described like a football game, where a small group of overworked, committed people are out in the field desperately working hard and in need of a rest, while a whole crowd of people desperately in need of exercise sits in the stands and watches. That has described the church for too long and it's not the way Jesus describes the church. He describes the church as being people who go and take the message to the world to begin to change the communities around us and change the world. So what would this church or any church look like if we left the huddle here this morning to do battle on the grid lines of our community? My prayer for you is that you continue the journey you have already begun to become the most effective group of people God has called to reach out to and to influence your community for the glory of of God. Each of us are called to move from me focus to a ministry focus, and a ministry for our sake to a ministry for the world's sake focus. Simply put, you and I are called to make disciples, not just converts. Converts join a club, disciples start a movement. Converts follow traditions, disciples follow Jesus. Converts change their minds. Disciples change lives. Disciples change other people's lives. And I invite you into that kind of ministry. That's what God's calling you to be. That's what God's calling you to do. And when you do that, the gates of hell will not stand against you. You will touch this community. You will reach this world. Because that is what God's called us to do. That's what he wants us to do. And he calls you today now my my prayer is that the Lord will bless you, that he will make you that kind of people, that he will fill you with his power and with his glory and with his goodness. So you will leave this place to do battle on the gridlines of our community for his sake and for his glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for allowing me to share with you today.